Fights On is produced with commercial consideration from Cubic Corporation. Since 1972, Cubic's ACMI has been a cornerstone of air combat range instrumentation. Cubic's LVC will expand that capability into the future across multi-domain operations. Truth in Training, Cubic LVC. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Welcome back to Fights On. Today we're talking about how the U.S. models threat aircraft and tactics, specifically through the employment of USAF aggressor squadrons. Joining us today is a familiar voice to listeners of the Fighter Pilot Podcast, USAF F-16 pilot Trevor Boat Boswell. In addition to serving in the Combat Air Force as an F-16 pilot and instructor, Boat was also an aggressor, flying the F-16 out of Isleson Air Force Base in Alaska, simulating potential threats to better prepare U.S. aviators to go in harm's way. So get ready, comrades, because fight is on. We want to be better and harder than any adversary uh, to defeat than you will ever experience in combat. You know, they would freeze and they'd blow through the merge and they wouldn't do what they were supposed to do. To be successful at first sight of these in combat and take away some of the mystery of what these enemy aircraft, these MiGs, could do. The aggressors are entering, entering the airspace at this time. Cruise action, the combat spread real tight. Roger, Talio, I've got one, and he's in the left-hand turn. F4, you're about to get guns. Box one on the F5, nose down. Turn in. Fights on. All right. Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Trevor Boat Boswell, USAF F-16 pilot, instructor pilot, and aggressor pilot, also co-host of the Fighter Pilot Podcast and host of the Warbird segments on the Fighter Pilot Podcast. Welcome, Boat. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me. Oh, absolutely. Well, hey, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background that led you into the Air Force and to the Viper? Yeah, sure. So I grew up kind of surrounded by aviation. My father was a A6 intruder pilot back in the Navy uh, during the 70s, uh, late 70s, maybe early 80s. And while I was very young at that point, and I don't really remember much of it, uh, he stayed involved with aviation throughout my entire life uh, and still through to this day, actually. Um, but his father was a B-24 pilot in World War II, and I've just been surrounded and, and have just fallen in love with aviation um, throughout my entire life, specifically military aviation, mm-hmm. um, which is uh, kind of what led me towards the Air Force. But uh, I wasn't actually really driven to become a pilot until about halfway through college, honestly. Um, and I was fortunate enough to have done well enough to set myself up to um, get a pilot slot via the Air Force ROTC program at the University of Colorado. And from there, I joined the Air Force, went to pilot training at Shepard Air Force Base in the Euro-NATO Joint Jet Pilot Training Program, and uh, was lucky enough to track select all the way through to the F-16, uh, which is the only uh, fighter aircraft that I have flown. Fortunately for me, going through the F-16, first assignment missile, and uh, had some combat experience in Iraq. And then from there, I transitioned to Isleson Air Force Base and was an aggressor um, up there for about three years. And then following that, went down to Luke Air Force Base as a RTU instructor, which I know you've talked about on previous episodes um, in the F-16 for uh, not only uh, US uh, pilots, but Taiwanese and Singaporean pilots as well. And then following that, uh, I left active duty and joined the uh, Air Force Reserves and flew at Hill Air Force Base until uh, I completed my flying time. And 
I've been active Air Force Reservist ever since and uh, found myself uh, interested in aviation, as I've stated, and came across the Fighter Pilot Podcast and was able to uh, reach out to Jello and through our mutual connection at our uh, joint airline, um, connected on a layover that he had and uh, kind of got involved with the podcast from there as a guest and then subsequently started taking over some uh, ancillary duties and finally co-hosting duties of the Warbird section I could talk about. All right. Well, that's pretty awesome. And that's quite the aviation pedigree going back to the to the B-24 flying at your grandfather. I don't think I knew that part and that, that helps fill in the Warbirds part. And uh, yeah, Hey, well, well, I'll mention that a little bit at the end, but we're here today to talk about aggressors, what they are, how they came about. So we'll start briefly what an aggressor is, what an aggressor squadron is, and we'll start talking about where they came from. Yeah, sure. So uh, the general concept of an aggressor pilot, and I think to some degree, never having been one, but to some degree, an adversary pilot is basically a threat replicator for uh, friendly forces, in this case, blue air, as we like to call them, of U.S. and allied aircraft for the purposes of enhancing their training in a realistic combat-based uh, scenario, or potentially some, uh, as we also like to call them, part-task trainers, so specifically talking about how they would um, operate in uh, specific 1v1 types of settings potentially as well. A lot of that you know, aircraft-specific on what they're looking for and what they need for training, but that's kind of the general overview of what an aggressor or an adversary aircraft is, is mission-driven to do. Okay. And yeah, you'll have to forgive me there. Uh, I think sometimes I uh, reverse aggressor and adversary. If you don't mind, give the listener just a quick overview, because I know they're slightly different terms. Yeah, they are. They are slightly different. Um, you know, and honestly, I, I'm not the smartest when it comes to the in, exact intent behind what an adversary does, as as I think we all know it from Top Gun and and everything. You know, the, the famous MiG-28 that uh, isn't really a MiG-28. <laughs> um, you know, was designed to uh, to go out there and, and replicate. Uh, I, I think at the time, Soviet aircraft. I think we can all yep. say that pretty confidently. Yeah, I think flight. we're safe to say that now. Yeah, yeah for sure. Um, but uh, as far as an aggressor pilot, and I'll, I'll probably keep most of our discussion focused on that just for corporate knowledge purposes. Mm -hmm. Um, We were designed to be threat replicators for a variety of different aircraft types. And through various forms of intelligent collection and gathering, uh, we were able to deduce what the typical types of tactics and maneuvers that potential adversaries would perform and as well as fly the aircraft in certain ways to replicate the threat country's aircraft to the best of our ability. And so some of that would go back to doctrine. We're going to use some kind of big strategic level words here, how they would employ the aircraft. Every country is different on their mindset, and um, especially coming out of former Soviet Union types of countries, uh, they had a very different type of command and control structure uh, as opposed to Western forces, which was very much more tactical and independent in nature. Uh, The former Soviet Union FSU uh, countries would typically be very centralized command and control from one controller, and that one controller would basically tell the pilots what they wanted them to do, whereas in Western countries, the controller was more of a support and situation awareness enhancement, but was not the end state decision maker for what that pilot in the aircraft was actually going to do. So very different philosophy when it came to doctrine of employment of fighter aircraft. Um, As we've seen over time, technology has improved and enhanced the ability for the pilots in the aircraft to make larger strategic level decisions um, by the use of Link 16 and and other forms of data link. And then obviously the types of aircraft and what they are specifically designed to do has enhanced that as well with the F-22 and fifth generation um, fusion capabilities. So as far as aggressor uh, aircraft, we will go out there and we'll utilize the intelligence that has been gathered by other portions of, in this case, the United States uh, federal government uh, and the 
Department of Defense and take those and design um, training profiles, essentially, um, for the purposes of enhancing the training that our blue forces, the good guys, uh, come to the various exercises. So red flag, I'm pretty sure most of your listeners have probably heard of red flags in, NAS, uh, in Nellis Air Force Base in Nevada, uh, as well as at Isleson Air Force Base in Alaska. And then a few other joint exercises around the U.S., uh, as well as our allied countries uh, to include uh, Maple Flag up in Canada. Um, and we will execute the prescribed maneuvers and tactics based off of what the training objectives are that the Blue Air is trying to accomplish within the construct of the exercises, which are typically large force, i.e. multiple uh, formations of blue aircraft versus multiple formations of red aircraft, the aggressors in this case, as well as potentially integrating surface-to-air missile systems and defensive systems of that nature. Okay. And so, you know, you're not really playing to win per se, right? You're playing to replicate to the best of our ability what the warfighter is going to see when we go to war. That's exactly right. We are there to perform a service, if you will. We are support asset to the betterment of blue forces, which means that we will provide the prescribed type of training, the prescribed profiles, uh, the prescribed weapons employment of uh, adversary countries as best as we know how to replicate it. And from there, if we find ways that would enhance their training through normal methods. We're not going to go above and beyond what the aircraft Mm -hmm. we are designed to replicate is able to accomplish. But if we find ways to take advantage of blue mistakes, we are going to take advantage of those in order to give them that feedback so that they can take those lessons and learn them in the debrief to not make those mistakes again in the future. Awesome. I've used sports analogies here on the show a little bit before, and you're essentially a sparring partner or uh, maybe a scrimmage. You're the, uh, you're the scrimmage team using really detailed game tapes of who you think you're going to play next. So you're not playing from your team's best defense, so to speak. You are trying to play your future opponent's defense and let your offense figure out how to maximize against that. Exactly right. And the one kind of unique piece to all of that is that as a blue flight lead in this case, coming into being an aggressor, and we can talk about how you become an aggressor here in a little while, I bet. But as someone that flew the exact same maneuvers and game plans that those blue fighters are going to go out there and perform to, you know, perfect, if you will, I already have kind of a a leg up as an adversary or an aggressor pilot uh, to what they're going to do. So I know how to expect and anticipate those next moves. And so when I do see a potential issue, I have a way to identify that to them in the debrief as either MiG-1 or another uh, formation uh, member. And I can go up there and talk to them after the fact as well to give them a little bit of an enhanced level of training. Yeah. I think that's really interesting facet of this. And really important is that it's not a mindless replication of enemy or I should say future threat or potential threat tactics and platforms. It's an intelligent application thereof, which means, you know, we tend to believe we have the best pilots in the world. So if we have the best pilots flying the enemy techniques and replicating enemy platforms, the actual opposition will never be any better than that. Like training is going to be the hardest thing you face in theory. Uh, you know, that's what we're aiming for because that's how you win and that's how you minimize your own casualties. Yeah, I think the philosophy that they started this entire program with was we want to be better and harder than any adversary uh, to defeat 
than you will ever experience in combat. And I think if you take a look at the history of the origins of this program, this goes all the way back to Project Constant Peg back in the 70s, 60s, really, as they started to look at ways to better the pilot force. Um, you know, they took legitimately Soviet aircraft. And, you know, we're talking MiG-17s, MiG-21s, MiG-23s. And they took American pilots who were very highly skilled, uh, hand-selected, um, and took them out to the Tonopah Range. There's a couple of great books. One of them, Red Eagles, is an amazing book that I highly recommend anybody to, to uh, go take a look, uh, take a uh, read at um, if you're listening to this to get a really good feel for what they were trying to accomplish and why the, they used the methodology that they did, which was to take these aircraft and get the American pilots the exposure they needed, both you know Air Force, Navy, Marines, the exposure they needed to be successful at first sight of these in combat and take away some of the mystery of what these enemy aircraft, these MiGs could do. And we have just kind of you know extrapolated against that um, the use of now American technology and a function of this is is solely based on the fact that those those MiGs were, you know, gathered from around various locations around the world um, without the support and logistics train that, uh, you know, obviously the, the Soviet Union had to support them. So we had to, you know, come up a little bit of creative ways to uh, charge ejection seat uh, charges to make those things usable. And, and how do we even run these engines and, and take care of these aircraft and so on? But if you look at what they attempted to do, and were very successful at doing, they took a lot of the mystery of what these aircraft were, how they performed, um, and they taught American pilots, both in the classroom and in the air, how to better defeat them. And it was just simply repetition yeah. of those skill sets and education through those uh, through those methodologies. And as those aircraft started getting phased out and, and the program ended in the, in the 80s, uh, then they, they had this, you know, how are we going to solve this problem now? Because we can't just grab a bunch of MiG-29s. They don't exist in the quantities. And it's obviously pretty clandestine operation to get them. So how are we going to replicate those things in with aircraft that actually do a better, a better job of, of, uh, logistically and supply and supply train wise, um, efficiently using taxpayer dollars. And so they came up with, you know, utilizing a fours, T 38s, the F twenties at, at some points, I'm sure the F 16 ends for the Navy. Uh, and now obviously with the U S air force is, you know, the primary, um, aggressor aircraft is the F 16. Um, and that is what I flew when I was stationed at Eilson Air Force Base in Alaska. Okay. Well, thank you for that. That's a great history of that. And I think we'll circle back at the end to a little bit of constant peg and what we don't get using through that. And I'll just, I'll second going out there and uh, Red Eagles and anything else, constant peg, a fascinating piece of Cold War history. And it actually, the layers of onion you can peel away from constant peg and cover stories. I'll leave that for another day, but it's fascinating. Go, go take a look at it. So you know, that's that's where aggressor squadrons came from. Let's talk about your route to the aggressor squadron and what the quals were, how you got there, uh, and then we'll then we'll jump into what you did. And we know you flew the F sixteen, but obviously you flew it differently. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, as I stated before, I went to the B course at uh, Luke Air Force Base in Arizona. And from there, my first duty assignment was Misawa Air Base in Japan. I flew the Block 50 F-16 out there, deployed to Iraq. I went to multiple um, exercises, specifically in Alaska, just based on proximity. That's the closest place for us to have gone at that point. I was there from uh, 2007 to 2010, about three years. I went through the mission qualification training program, the MQT program, and then followed it up with the flight lead upgrade while I was stationed there. That process took 
gosh, probably about six months, I want to say, to complete the flight lead upgrade program. And that's a mission-centric program based on the, the aircraft and unit that you're assigned to. And so for the Block 50s at Misawa, we are a seed unit, suppression of enemy air defenses. So we went through all the basic BFM, uh, basic fighting maneuvers or dogfighting portions, and I had to lead those and debrief uh, and brief those sorties. Uh, and then from there, you transition to ACM, air combat maneuvering, which is 2v1, and did the same process for those. And then you go to ACT, which turns into uh, air combat tactics, and uh, that turns into basically a four-ship type of employment of the aircraft. Along the way, you'll do some tactical intercepts and run through some employment of long-range missiles beyond visual-range missiles. Um, and then um, after that, you go through um, your large force types of exercises. Uh, so you're talking those red flags. And so you'll finish those uh, upgrades in the, in the LFE phase, if you will. And that's where you're talking your four ship along with like three or four other four ships and maybe some, some strikers down below and all those other you know, factors that go into these massive engagements, these massive air wars um, that you're employing the aircraft and the, um, that you're assigned to um, based on the mission set. So we would shoot harm missiles, high-speed anti-radiation missiles um, at surface-to-air missile sites. Uh, we'd employed our BVR missiles, and then we'd look to uh, support the strikers to go drop the bombs on whatever targets were assigned um, or it could potentially airdrop sure. missions or otherwise. But uh, that is the function of the Block 50 squadron in the F-16 world. And then transitioning out of that squadron, I went directly to Eielson Air Force Base and was there for approximately three years, 2010 to 2013. And I had to rapidly change my mindset on what uh, flying the F-16 was really about. Uh, so I went from a Block 50 uh, to a Block 30 um, F-16. Basically the same engine, pretty darn close, uh, slightly different, a slightly lower power threshold on that one. But fundamentally, the airplanes are exactly the same. However, the mission set is drastically different. And so you go from blue and, and going to win the war and drop bombs and, and ev kill everything in front of you to, okay, I need to figure out how to train these guys that are going to go do that, that I just came from as best as possible. And so you go into a pretty significant amount of study when it comes to a little bit of the history, like we talked about, what an aggressor is, where it started, how it came to be. You go through another um, aggressor upgrade program, which gets you qualified to fly all the missions. And the number of acronyms is long <laughs> and yeah. different. So I'm not going to run through that to save your listeners all of those. But uh, fundamental and integral to all of this is you've got to be humble, credible, and approachable uh, throughout that entire process because you're interacting with all of these combat air forces, those CAF uh, Air Force fighter pilots that are coming through, specifically the young wingmen that are fresh out of the B course. They're going into um, a large force engagement for the first time, and they may have questions. There's definitely some nerves that are out there. They've never flown in something with this many airplanes trying to do you know, whatever they're trying to do all at the same time, so the, you know, the big dance, right. if you will. Um, and you want to be the responsible party out in the air at all times. You are a training aid. You are there to support them. And so the last thing you want to do is fly through their, their altitude block or give them uh, bad replication uh, to remove um, time in the seat, in those experiences, and uh, kind of ruin their training effectively. So you need to be uh, very smart as to what it is that you're out there to go do um, and own up to your mistakes um, if you do make them so that you can hopefully you know, let them continue to trust in the system as well as learn something and walk away from that experience better than they started. Right. Because I, and we talked with Rain about the philosophy of training and I think we, people have heard about Top Gun and the things that came before Top Gun in the Air Force weapon schools, which were 
you know, we're going way back to the fifties with some, well, I had hard licks coming up kids. So you're going to have them too. And that's how you're going to learn. And that's not a great teaching method. Like you said, to your point, you're showing new pilots something that's going to potentially save their lives. You don't want them tuning that out because of your attitude as an instructor. So I think that's really important too. And it speaks to the professionalism of yourself and, and those who flew with you, because when you are playing that op four role, if you will, which I haven't done in the air, but I've done on the ground when you're not playing to lose, like we said, but you're playing to replicate the threat which means you do lose, right? Because we're training our guys to win. It can be hard to stay humble and, you know, not get a little chip on your shoulder when you're losing, you know, because you're, you're throttling yourself back. So kudos to you. And I think that's really important to bring out. Yeah. One of the hardest things to do is continually lose. Yeah. As a fighter pilot, that is not how you are bred. Right. I will say that for sure. So there's a little bit of humility that comes with the job. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the first things they try to instill in you is, okay, it's time to take off the warrior spirit in the full extent and put that off to the side for a bit, you know, a couple of years here and focus on somebody else for a little bit and uh, right. be a little, little selfless in that respect. Now I will say you get really good at killer moving, which is ultimately where you want to be. That means somebody's killed you in the air and you're going to go reset for another, you know, another <laughs> replicated bad guy, if you will. Yeah. But that's exactly what we're asking of our aggressor pilots. We're expecting of them and uh, we want them to do because ultimately if we're dying, that means they're doing a good job. Right. Cause you're not handing them the victory either. No. They're earning it. Absolutely. So you did that for about three years. You flew the block 30. Let's talk about flying the F-16 below its capabilities. You know, obviously that's, that's gotta be a hard thing to do, but that's what you're doing. So let's talk through it as much as you can on an unclass level. What threats would you mimic? You know, was it just one aircraft or one one airframe you were mimicking with the F-16 or was it multiple? And how do you do that? You know, again, I'll, I'll just hammer on the we're we're staying with an OPSEC here. We're not giving anything away, but sure. What's that look like? Yeah. So it's been a minute since I've flown. I last time I was an aggressor was back in 2013. And so obviously it's been around eight, nine years now. Obviously things change. So to what I'm going to speak to is, you know, a little bit dated, but uh, I think the the essence of all of this is realistically going to remain the same. There are a few different avenues with which we tailor the training. Uh, so the first is um, a performance level of the aircraft. Uh, so there may be certain circumstances where we modulate our power, i.e. we don't use full afterburner during certain types of engagements. We may have some G restrictions that are placed on the aircraft, i.e. instead of pulling the full nine Gs uh, that the F-16 is capable of, uh, we may only pull seven and a half because the aircraft are replicating. That's what they are limited to. So there are some performance types of limitations that we would place on it. Mm -hmm. Doctrinally, we could restrict the types of maneuvering that the aircraft would perform. And so that would be, hey, you know what? We fly as two ships. And instead of having two independent aircraft, they're basically just two aircraft welded wingmen, as we like to call them, and they never leave each other's side. So you talk, you know, listen to the, the discussions in Top Gun, the first one, you never leave your wingmen. That's kind of one of the philosophies that uh, doctrinally in the past, uh, aircraft were flown as pros and cons to that too. So you've got those types of situations. You've got different uh, maneuver levels beyond that, where the aircraft may have aggressive vertical maneuvering, or they may be restricted to, you know, only like 5,000 feet at a time or something to that effect. So you have different formations, you have different overall maneuvering, uh, different quantities of aircraft in a formation, and then different mentalities with the, with the pilots. How aggressive are they going to be in terms of, are they going to take shots 
at a longer distance or are they gonna wait to take shots until they're closer? I and mean, depending on the types of weapons that we are replicating, because that then varies as well, sure. based on the type of aircraft that's being flown, that may provide some different training avenues uh, and training opportunities for the Blue Air pilots as well. And so, you know, if you're talking about infrared missiles, uh, we may be on a legacy former Soviet Union aircraft and they may only have weapons that can shoot from behind. They may have weapons that can shoot from all different uh, angles. They may have limitations on weapons that uh, if you see flares, they are defeated. Whereas other types of infrared missiles, if you don't see flares or if you do see flares, it doesn't matter because those missiles are coming at you, um, those types of things. And then you move over to the radar types of missiles. And depending on the country and the type of uh, missile, those ones may be long range, but you have to stay radar locked the whole time. Or there may be some where they're long range missile shots and you can turn your aircraft around and not have to use your radar the entire time. So uh, that's some of the weapons capabilities. But typically as a US Air Force aggressor, we stick to the air to air role. Uh, there's no real need for us to uh, bomb targets um, because we are training for the air to air fight. Right. So typically a large force engagement. We're going to have an initial presentation, which would be representative of the host country. And that also depends on the mindset as well. If we are expecting to um, be the more of aggressors, the blue air would be in a defensive counter air mindset, i.e. the bad guys, the red air is going to go try to kill something that the blue air is defending. And then the other flip side of that is offensive counter air. Uh, that's, that would be where red air is defending the targets and the blue air is trying to strike targets. So a lot of different options and everything is tailor-made to what it is that we're trying to achieve um, for the Blue Air's objectives. Okay. So would those objectives be part of a fixed training cycle? Would they be adjusted for a given squadron? And I guess there's, there's another question like, what is the squadron rotation up to face you guys? But would it be tailored to where they're going and what, what Intel or ops thought they were going to see? Uh, so you're going to love the answer. You've probably received it a few times. <laughs> Uh, it, it depends, depends yeah. right? So we live in a colloquial Burger King world, right? Yep. You, you make it your way, and that's exactly what we try to do. Um, every squadron is going through some different variants of training, whether that's preparation for a deployment. That deployment may change when it comes to the type. Could be a close air support, could be a defensive counter-focused uh, deployment, could be just posturing for whatever the you know the federal government has decided is the is the right course in action. Um, who knows? There's a thousand different ways to uh, prep okay. a squadron or a bunch of units for an exercise. But typically, in a large force exercise, there will be a two week time period, so about nine days effectively, two goes a day, so two of these fights each day, um, where they are going to go fight, and it will be pre described uh, based on months of planning in advance, what each of the individual units that are participating have asked to learn about okay. and, and train to. And a lot of that is dictated by the type of aircraft they're flying and what it is they individually are trying to achieve. Okay. Yeah. So it's very flexible. It sounds like according to the needs of the deploying unit. Correct. Yeah. Okay. How many squadrons would you guys see a year coming up or a squadron, even the right unit? Are they coming up as, as a different deployable force structure? Nope. Squadrons are, uh, is, is the accurate label specifically for fighter units. Now, when you speak with uh, bomber squadrons or um, you'd have other like AWACS units and things that would come up as well. Um, mm -hmm. All of them would obviously, because there are fewer of those types of aircraft, sure. they would have crews switch out. So you could technically call that a squadron thing, but in terms of yeah. representative force on the ground, you're just not as many aircraft. That being said, right. yeah, squadron is the appropriate term and you're going to see call it 
one red flag every six weeks, maybe two months, something like that. So you're going to have like five or six over the course of a summer. And obviously in Alaska, summer matters because the winter is brutally cold. Uh, We don't typically do red flags during the winter months, but you're going to see, you know, call it six total squadrons worth of uh, blue forces versus the one aggressor squadron typically. And then potentially, depending on the mission type, you may utilize some of the blue aircraft to act as additional augmentees for red air, Hmm. depending on the type of mission that they are trying to train to uh, on that day. Okay. So how would you wrap those guys in? Is it, is it as simple as giving them a mission brief for that flight or do you have to bring them in and, and really give them some precursor training to do that? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll just go with the general template for what the mission planning cycle looks like for a red, uh, so like a red flag, um, large force exercise engagement. So that actually starts the day prior. And so if you're going to be the first go of the day, let's say your go is a Wednesday morning, you're going to start everything Tuesday morning. Um, you're going to get an initial brief at about 7 a.m., give or take, from the mission planning cell lead. Uh, they're going to hand you all the basic documentation uh, that the notional commander has provided. And that notional commander will have tell, told you how much level of risk that your mission uh, is going to accept. And that basically equates to how risky of a mission it is. Right. Uh, it's going to give you an initial laydown of all the intel that they have gathered and all the threats that are associated with the, the mission set that's associated with the area that you're going to. Um, and then from there, that mission mission lead is going to figure out how to solve the problem utilizing the different assets that are available to them, which means that the flight leads from each of the squadrons and the aircraft that are represented would then all be around the table and they'd be talking about how to how to crack that nut, if you will, and solve that problem. Uh, that is going to take literally the entire day, sure. the day before, because you're not only worried about how to get uh, from where you're all starting from to the target, but you're also worried about how to get from the base, in this case, Eielson Air Force Base, up to the marshalling point and then back without running aircraft into each other. So there's a lot of deconfliction that goes into this just based on the nature of the, the facilities and the airspace. Um, but overarchingly, the focus of the mission is on the mission itself and how to successfully accomplish all the objectives that are tasked against you. As far as the mission sets that require augmentees from the Blue Air, mm-hmm. um, there is also a counterpart mission commander uh, that we have labeled MiG-1. And that MiG-1 will do a couple of briefings with the mission planning cell leader. And that mission planning cell is, we call them the white force. They're kind of that neutral party that's just helping facilitate the planning cycle to make sure that all the safety uh, valves are met, uh, that we don't do something dangerous. Um, But MiG-1 will get the intent behind what are they trying to accomplish that day, how much of a threat, like so the threat types of aircraft, the quantity of aircraft, how much refueling support you need, what the replication for the day is going to be in terms of weapons and employment. I didn't mention it earlier, but they talk uh, about electronic attack. Uh, that also includes jamming. Uh, we have jamming pods on the aggressor aircraft that we, we will utilize to help provide additional types of training to the Blue Air Forces. Right. And then a few other odds and ends here and there that uh, would go into that planning cycle. And typically for the augmentees, um, those are typically done on uh, quote unquote DCA days, defensive counter air days for Blue Air. And that means that we have more red air than there is Blue Air in the airspace. And that's why we have the extra aircraft. Okay. And they will be given basically their routes that we want them to fly. We'll tell them what kind of aircraft we're asking them to replicate. And those typically end up being some kind of striker asset that is going to fly over predetermined points and either drop bombs or shoot air launched like cruise missiles or something to that effect. And they will replicate just additional aircraft to help provide additional problems for the uh, Blue Air to solve. 
And that white cell you mentioned, I think that's important to point out for the listener. We do similar things in, in surface warfare and expeditionary warfare. You have that neutral party, as you said, and it's for you guys, safety of flight, for us, safety and navigation or weapon safety, which is critical. You don't want to lose somebody to a, a silly training oversight that becomes fatal. Yeah. But then also, you know, if we're doing our jobs right, both of us in the past, but you know, the current guys, if they're doing their jobs right, they can plan their way into a win. Right. Because if you if you plan right with deception and routes, there's not even a fight to be had. But that doesn't give training. Right. They, we're not up there to to train the plan, uh, the planning aspect. We're up there to train the fight. So you need that white cell in there to make sure that you're not tipping the hand to MIG-1, as you as you referenced the uh, Op 4 leader and his team, but just to make sure that we're all in there and getting in the fight to exercise the things that need to be exercised. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. We need that coordination with that white cell party to make sure that we're, we're on track. But then again, safety being paramount, we can't send anybody to war if they've, they've had a mishap and, and potentially are injured or worse. Yeah. So we need, we need a little bit of safety oversight on this process. And then, the, you know, there are, because this is just training, there are some artificial things that are going on mm-hmm. um, throughout this. And, and maybe we can touch on those, but uh, overarchingly, um, we are going to force a fight. We're not going to just be able to yep. run away and, and live to fight another day. Today is the day. We don't have a choice. Right. So, Yeah, this is it. Well, let's talk about maybe some of those artificialities because I want to talk about some of the challenges here of replicating foreign aircraft and foreign systems. So, it's, you know, it's not just the aircraft. It's the electronics they carry, right? So no matter how hard you work at it, and and actually at the end, we can talk on paint schemes a little bit because I know Allison's sort of famous for those sure. uh, and they have some pretty cool ones. But you, you just, unless you're bringing, we'll go back in time, you know, Soviet built radar up there, it's not throwing the same Tron patterns out, right? So you've got these artificialities, you've got these things and there's certain limitations. So how do you guys work around those? Is, you know, is it just briefed out or are there modes that, could be used and I don't want to touch too far into that and and get someplace special we shouldn't go. Sure. But you know, how do you work through those? Yeah, that that's always a challenge. Um and obviously the best threat to uh, practice against is the threat. Um but given funding and obviously resource limitations that's that's not realistic. And so you make do by in this day and age the, the you know the digital computer age, you make do by uh, potentially changing some of the equipment that you have on board your aircraft to uh, more closely or more accurately represent the electronic patterns like you discussed um, that are out there in the real world. And uh, you can basically make some of your displays uh, show and act as if it's something else, um, even though you you know didn't change the radar signatures or the radar frequencies or, or something of that nature. You can make it show as something else if you um, if you wanted to, and that's one way to get a, kind of get around that. Um, the biggest thing is the type of execution of game plans. Um, that that is how we best replicate the threat out there. Um, and so when I'm talking about that is, you know, we look at, um, using the Intel that's collected by other agencies, we look at what the enemy has traditionally done and we do our best to replicate that because that is what will ultimately matter when it comes to how our blue air forces the leadership 
in the in the fight itself um, execute the game plans that they've been practicing and the, and and the doctrine that the United States and our allied nations fight with uh, to face those threats because you can have the greatest radar in the world but if you can't see the other side it doesn't matter and so you need to be able to figure out how to work through your contingencies if something doesn't work right or if instead of four aircraft in your formation you only have three how would you change your game plan those are the types of things that we are trying to get our flight leadership on the scene to work through real time mm -hmm. uh, using the cues and the technology that they have available to make those choices. And then okay. it comes down to the individual pilots. You know, it's not just the flight leaders. You've got wingmen that are having to make big, big boy decisions, big boy and girl decisions out there um, on the fly based off of one single piece of communication that they heard um, because they didn't have the awareness up until that moment. And now they can make a better choice based on going through those things. So it's, it's a hard balance because when you look now at fifth generation, technology and we've had the f-22 for a while f-35s you know definitely coming up to speed pretty pretty hard and fast but the capability of the technology on those aircraft well exceeds what an f-16 can do specifically f-16s that are in aggressor roles and so we have got to find other ways to train to those those aircraft because they can yep. you know even the pacific alaska range complex up in alaska it well exceeds the total space that is uh, in the in the nellis uh, training uh, areas but even the f-35 and the f-22 it's realistically not not big enough for that. And the only place it would be is in the real world. Um, and that's not where we want to learn some bad lessons. So we've got to right. come up with some artificial limitations that's you know due to training rules um, and other airspace limitations that kind of forces our hand uh, into closer, closer fights. And unfortunately, some of that realism has, has to just kind of go by the wayside. Yeah. So it's, you know, again, I'll go back to a sports analogy. When you got to play half court, it's just not the same. Correct. Yeah. You know, you're not getting everything you would. You're getting a lot of it, but we're just starting to outstrip that. And we'll actually be talking about that in in the ultimate episode here uh, when we get PK on and start talking about some of the solutions to all of the challenges we have out there. Yeah. To one of the things you spoke about, which is, you know, the wingman out there having to make a decision on just a little bit of information or or a, a fleeting moment. What a maybe this might be a little tangential, but related to that, you know, you talked about, you know, you've done uh, at least one combat tour, right. Mm -hmm. And uh, you had significant training before that, but anyone who's gone and operated whatever the venue knows that there's just no substitute, right. You're never going to feel like that first time you're over there and you know, you got to pickle a bomb or you got to shoot a harm or, you know, you got, you got tick, you got a troops in contact or you're, you're in that convoy, whatever it may be. It's just, it's never going to be the same. And, you know, to some extent, you know, the natural tendency of someone in that situation, seeing the elephant is, I think this is the saying goes back at least a hundred years is, you know, the human tendency fight or flight and your water, your brain sort of turns to water and runs out yours. You're like, I can't believe this is really happening. You're trying to take away as much of that response as, as possible, right? Make training as, as granular and as realistic as you can, because you're never going to take away all of those human emotions. You're never going to take away all of the little bits and things, but you want to make it as real as possible so that the person in the arena, to, you know, to quote uh, a former great American, is is dealing with the smallest number of new experiences they can be, right? 
That's very true. Yeah. And that's, you know, you go back to that constant peg again, they, they brought no kidding, real MIGs yep. flown by American pilots in there. So that the first time they went to emerge those new American pilots and F4s and whatever other, other aircraft, uh, that they were flying at the time, F14s and whatnot would go to the merge and see this aircraft for the first time and not freak out. Right. And that's a real thing. I, you know, I don't remember where I read it, but I think I recall reading some of these guys the first time they saw them, it was so amazing. They didn't react as quickly as they should have. It's like, oh, I'm really seeing a MIG. I'm not, you know, I guess back then we're talking about coming up against another F4, or potentially a, a 105 or a, a Crusader or something. And just that moment of, holy cow, this is real. Yep. That's exactly the whole point. And, and you, know. you kind of alluded to the paint schemes. That's another reason why the paint schemes are different. Yeah. And they would freeze and they'd blow through the merge and they wouldn't do what they were supposed to do, which was, you know, turn across their tail or whatever the tactics were for that aircraft. And they put themselves in really bad spots because they lost sight of what they were supposed to do because they were so freaked out and so emotional from seeing something that they'd only read read about and read the horror stories about dealing with. Right. And now they're dealing with it in person for the first time. So, uh, you know, the, the initial start of Red Flags was designed to take the first 10 combat sorties mm -hmm. out of the way of a pilot so that the first time they go into combat, they've, they've taken away that shock value of being in actual combat, combat because they found that those first 10 sorties were the ones that they lost the most wingmen uh, from. Right. And so if they can do that same thing with aggressor aircraft and take that shock value out from going to emerge and, and doing some bad dogfighting or whatever the case may be, they were much more successful in the longevity of keeping that pilot alive. And they get a much better return on investment for the uh, yeah. dollars that they're putting into their training. I I think that's one of those timeless things because, uh, you know, I'm certain that goes back at least to World War II, it, but it may even be, you know, the first World War where they determined, yeah, if you can get the pilot through X, and I think, you know, like you said, they've determined it to be 10. If they can get through that many missions, the chance of survival just goes goes way up. Definitely does. Yeah. So, uh, you know, if you, you know, we've all learned to drive, right? And uh, boy, I think about it was a ways back, obviously, but uh, my first couple times on the road there, but for the grace of God, go, I, ah, you're not necessarily making the best decisions and uh, sure. you don't have the best situational awareness and there's nothing like actual reps to get you there. Exactly. So uh, it, it's sort of a trivia thing, but we've talked about it a couple times. Let's talk about those paint schemes up at Ileson because I know they're, they're a, uh, I don't know if I'll say a fan favorite because I don't know how big our following is, but they're a, uh, they're a favorite of aviation fans and they're pretty cool. So, you know, are they based on actual threat paint schemes and whether they are or not, how are they selected and how often are they rotated? Well, I can, I can tell you that they're not rotated that often um, because painting an aircraft is expensive. Plus it also adds a layer of extra paint and they don't normally strip them completely clean until they go to like a depot level type of maintenance. So uh, they are, the more you put on there, the more weight, the less performance you get out of it. So in terms of frequency of rotation, uh, it's not frequent at all. I, you'd have to speak with the maintenance side of the house to know exactly what that's, that cycle is. But um, during my time, up in Alaska, uh, we had the three generic, uh, quote unquote, generic um, replication paint schemes. So we had the blue one, which we called flanker blue, and that's attributed to the SU-27, SU-30. Um, and that's the, the paint scheme that the Russians at the time used primarily for their, um, their flanker fleet. Uh, you had the green, the lizard green, traditional old school camo, looked like old school BDUs for those familiar with those. And that was for 
you know, more of a ground attack type of uh, like SU-25 Frogfoot style paint scheme back again in the Cold War where they were hiding airplanes and trees and, and revetments and that kind of thing. And then you had the unique one to the Arctic, which was the Arctic paint scheme, the black, gray, and white. And that one's probably the most standout-ish up until probably about 2014, 2015. And then all of a sudden, it was like the world exploded and they just gave the the <laughs> keys to the artists of the world and started making all kinds of crazy digital paint schemes. Uh, and so now that's what you see on all of the aggressors. And you don't have like just three, you've uh, a different styles of paint schemes. You've got like 12 in a squadron of 18 airplanes. Uh, so you're seeing ghost, you're seeing like, there's one that looks like a stealth, like the black, black with like red trim and all kinds of crazy stuff. And I, I don't even know them all because, uh, there's just, there's too many, there's that many. Um, but they all are representative of aircraft that are replicated by, uh, air force aggressors. Okay. Well, you know, I guess once the U S military broke that seal on digital camouflage and, uh, every service had to figure out its own and my own service, the Navy's gone through, I don't know how many repetitions, uh, I won't air my feelings on that here, but, uh, you know, apparently we've gotten there in airframes as well. And, uh, you know, for the listener out there, if you're not familiar with what we're talking about, you you can just go Google uh, aggressor paint schemes, uh, particularly Eilson. They're pretty striking. They're pretty amazing. And that leads me to a question, question statement, I guess. I, so I read something, I guess, about two weeks ago, which was, uh, you know, there's a normal rotation of combat air force CAF forces right in and out of Europe, in and out of the Far East at this point. And I had read that the Eilson F-22s were on a European rotation and that left just the aggressor squadron taking a turn at intercepts, you know, as being the, the uh, air defense force. Was that something that was going on when you were there? Are, are these fully combat ready squadrons? Uh, so I'll do a fact check on you. So it's Elmendorf uh, F-22s. You're, Elmendorf. you're good. Okay. Um, no, Sorry it's about okay. that. It's okay. okay. So F-22s at Elmendorf, uh, they are on their deployment cycle in this case, and they place them not in Alaska. And from there, yeah, like you said, there was a vacant space for uh, the air defense force, um, the, the, the aircraft that execute Operation Noble Eagle. And in my current position at uh, North American Air Defense Command, NORAD, I help to oversee and educate you know, general aviation pilots on uh, how to understand you know, temporary flight restrictions, how to respond to uh, intercepts. And one of the things, like you mentioned, was that the aggressors were executing the Operation Noble Eagle mission. And for Alaska, just based on proximity, instead of the general aviation population, the majority of intercepts that take place up there are against Russian bombers that are coming down the uh, west coast of Alaska and transitioning down to Canada uh, and the west coast of the U.S. And so, yes, they actually have employed aggressor aircraft to execute those intercepts, which means they load them up with live missiles, a couple of fuel tanks. Uh, they have a tanker force standing on by to support them in the long distances because Alaska is like about two thirds the size of the contiguous 48 states here in the U.S., it's a long way. And uh, so they placed a couple aircraft on alert and they sit there and they respond as needed. Something that is unique about those aircraft and those paint schemes is they not only have uh, U.S. Air Force roundels on them, the uh, stars with uh, you know, the circle around it and then the couple of bars on either side. They also have red stars if they are representing a Russian 
uh, or Soviet Union, I should say, era aircraft. Uh, so they actually had to paint over the stars because oh. now they're now they're yeah. in an official combat coding to support that that mission, that Operation Noble Eagle mission. And so they did have to make some paint modifications to the visual identification on those aircraft. I have a mental image of those guys going up, and I imagine it's bears probably doing the most of the uh, the recon missions up there. And uh, you know, back in the Cold War, it was pulling on a gorilla mask, right, to to shock the Russian crews or holding up a uh, adult magazine, if you will. But uh, I can ima- only imagine the Russian crew's response to seeing uh, some of the uh, non traditional paint schemes coming up. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure they're they're like, wait a second, I thought we left these out at home. Yeah, did, yeah. did we go the wrong way? You know, we get <laughs> exactly. the compass bearing reversed. <laughs> that's right. But so to that point, so that's interesting that you know you guys as aggressors are a full up round, so to speak. You're you're still a combat asset, and that leads to you know one of my questions as we come to the closeout here, which is I know for Navy adversary squadrons they they do retain that capability, but I believe it's seen as time away from the fleet in terms of quals and readiness. Is time in aggressor squadron detrimental, neutral, or do you think beneficial to a combat air force pilot to come back with that experience? Yeah, that to put you on the spot. Yeah, no, not at all. That's that's there's so many layers to that question. Uh, So, first and and foremost, yeah, you talked about the quals that the uh, the pilot goes through. So when you transition from one unit to another, you actually technically lose all of your qualifications. Um, and that is specifically based on the doctrine and the mission statement for that, the, the new unit that you're going to. And so you go through the entire upgrade program, regardless of whether you're the youngest or the oldest guy in the program. And based on experience, that may be modified a little bit. Um, but fundamentally, you lose all of your qualifications. And so if you're an instructor going from one unit to another, you go from a being instructor high experience, whatever the, you know, the case may be to being a basic wingman. And you've got to start from scratch. You've got to go through the whole mission qualification training upgrade. So as long as the mission sets and the mission guidance for that organization are the same, then you should have a one for one swap, maybe a local area kind of check out to make sure you're familiar and you're not going to put yourself in a bad situation. Um, but fundamentally you've got to start from scratch and you've got to, to go through that whole process to learn how that, that squadron operates and how they do the, the business that that squadron is designed uh, and identified to do. And just because you fly one F-16 doesn't mean that you're you know, familiar with all the F-16s because there are some nuanced differences between the various blocks of F-16. Um, so you're going to have to go through some basic F-16 kind of uh, training, if you will, for systems and, and that kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. But but yeah, you, you start from scratch. So you've got some work to do, um, which means that as a blue air fighter going to the aggressors, uh, like I said, you, you kind of dump everything else because your focus then becomes the best possible aggressor you can be, which then on the, on the flip side is really frustrating when you leave the aggressors and you go back to blue air because you've just now spent, you know, two to three years, whatever it might be dumping all that information and you've got to relearn it all again. So that can be kind of frustrating. Yeah. Um, but again, you go through that same process to become the best you can possibly be, uh, while you're in the aggressors specifically and talking to this intercept mission. Um, when I was there, we did not have this. It was always kind of threatened and rumored, but it never was actually executed. And it hasn't really been until the last uh, year or so. I want to say, uh, that we've had to actually utilize them. And it was fundamentally just a ask set option because we needed the F-22s in Alaska to be able to move. And instead of backfilling them and putting another, you know, another unit out there, uh, we needed them to uh, be able to go and we could just have the inherent capability that the uh, aggressor F-16s at Ielsen have presence-wise and 
it's close, it's cheaper, if you will. Um, so yeah. that would have required them to go through a specific upgrade program and be requalified to employ weapons again. Um, and so there's some, some currency requirements associated with that. Overarching career-wise, so let's get away from the airplanes, let's talk about the people. Kind of like you mentioned, there has been in the past some impact, I think, to your Air Force officer career um, when it comes to going to to an organization like that. Um, it's not because it's bad, it's just a fundamental way of, of doing business. If you stay in the blue air the entire time, um, then your career path is kind of well-defined. It's the, the prototypical fighter pilot career. If you dive out a little bit, even tangentially, still flying airplanes and whatnot, but you're in this aggressor mindset, in some ways, uh, I think maybe just mentally, uh, there's a little bit of a change and uh, there can be potentially some, some negative impact to going to those things. When the organizations of the aggressors were first formed, you had the top tier instructors, weapons school graduates, that level of expertise. But as that has shrunk down, um, and as those assets, those people, those human assets have uh, reduced in quantity because the overall Air Force has shrunk, you know, you go from Cold War Air Force to current day Air Force, it's a very different size. Right. You needed to place those high performing, highly trained individuals in the units, which means that you can't consolidate them all in an aggressor squadron. It's just not reasonable. Right. Um, so there's some some potential degradation there, if you will, in an Air Force officer's career by going to something that is not in the traditional lane. And so that is you know something that they're always kind of fighting against, but it doesn't mean that they're any less sure. uh, quality of a pilot or, or officer. It's just, I think it's more of a mentality than anything else. Yeah. And I think the U.S. military and then each of the services are some of the largest administrative organizations in the world. And for all their flaws, you can claim flaws in various promotion systems or qualification systems. We still, for the most part, tend to get the right guys in the right place at the right time Yeah, uh, in terms of leadership. Uh, we get it right, I think, more often than we get it wrong. You know, there's some notable, I think, exceptions, and I might talk about those in a, in a future project. But to the point you're making, one of the ways that that's done is is because you got to sort of have that template of what that career looks like. So that's that's interesting. I think this is something we'll talk about with PK in a future episode is, you know, what are some opportunities we have to avoid those pitfalls yeah, as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Especially as the yeah. number of, co of, of cockpits starts to decrease, it's going to be or you know, continues to decrease. Let's let's say it that way. Right. Yeah. It's an interesting challenge to solve. And uh, I'm just thankful that I don't have to make those choices because it's it's not right. it's not an easy one by any stretch. That's right, because another recurring theme through this series has been that we talk about hyper-competitive people and A-type personalities and just the cost of entry to get into the services and then to fly and then to fly fighters. Pardon the analogy, but it's rarefied air. So when we're talking about people who, oh, this guy might be a superstar and this guy's not quite as good... That, we're talking Olympic athlete degrees of differentiation. Absolutely. So yep. I think that's important to take away too. And it's not in any way derogatory towards anyone. No. So it's a cost of being cost of being good. That's right. That's right. So all right. Well, we've talked about where the aggressor squadrons came from. We talked about, you know, how we got there and what they are now. We've talked about the the benefits. We've talked about the limitations. You know, I think we talked a little bit about OPSEC, not a whole lot, but just one of those things we have to 
consider when you're looking at those ranges. Also, you talked about there's not physically enough space down in Nevada and even up in Alaska. But then when you start looking at OPSEC, we don't want to be doing all this in front of prying eyes, if you will, either, right? So this is, you know, another benefit maybe of doing something up there in terms of you don't, even though Nevada is fairly isolated, I think we all saw a couple of years ago, what, there was a even a mass attempt to uh, rush Area 51, whatever that may or may not be. That's a whole nother topic for a whole nother show. But, you know, you, <laughs> yep. you probably... Well, you may have people rushing area rages up in Alaska, but I think they're going to be a lot more dedicated. But the flip side of that is, as you said, you're right next door to Russia. So there's always prying eyes. And that's one other thing I imagine you guys always have to be cognizant of when you're doing this training is you don't want to fully tip our hand either, right? Yeah, that's a fine balance, right? So you know that they're always watching. Mm-hmm. We're always watching them. I don't think anybody can to dispute that fact. Everybody's watching each other. It's just with what fidelity are they getting information? Right. Um, and to what degree are they gathering information? So, um, yeah, we have things that are classified, just like they have things that are classified. And so we're going to still use the tools that we have. We're just going to find ways to conceal those things. And I think there's, you know, there's no secret that, again, like I said, they're always watching. We just have to be smarter with what we talk about, mm-hmm. with what we put out there on social media, with just how, how confident we are in our abilities. Again, this comes back to that humble uh, aspect of things. We know that we are really good, mm-hmm. all right? But until the you know, rubber meets the road and you're actually in a, world, you know, in a, in a combat environment, you don't know how it's going to be. And again, we're probably not gonna use everything that is at our disposal. I mean, we're definitely not shooting aircraft down or anything mm-hmm. like that other than test scenarios. So we are going to have some training limitations that are going to impact our ability to use everything uh, that we would like to be able to use. But at the end of the day, you do the best with the, the materials, the, the equipment, the people, uh, the assets that you have in front of you. Um, and if there's more to use later, then that's just a little bit extra. But uh, but yeah, it, it's it's a hard one to uh, to know that there might be a little bit extra juice uh, if you will, to yeah. squeeze. Um, but again, we can't, we can't use everything right off the bat. Right. All right. Well, have I missed anything on, uh, talking aggressors? You know, I don't know how much you're going to talk about the F-35, mm-hmm. uh, incoming, um, incoming episodes, but, um, they are starting to utilize the F-35 right. as an aggressor platform. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've heard rumors. I haven't actually seen it, um, unless it's been just doctored photos, but, uh, potential different paint schemes for yeah. F-35s. And those F-35s were the original blocks of, F-6, of F-35s, uh, that they started using when they were first coming off the line. Um, and so that's a whole other realm of, uh, threat replication that mm-hmm. um, I was not and I'm not privy to, um, but that's definitely something that's going to really change the game on how uh, the aggressors execute their their mission, which is to provide replication and, and the best possible training. Um, and, you know, Scott, one thing that we, we didn't even touch on because we touched exclusively on airplanes, mm-hmm. um, but there are other types of aggressors that are out there that uh, the Air Force utilizes um, to train its personnel, which includes cyber. Not that that's necessarily in the lane of this podcast, um, but it's a full spectrum type of aggressor type of mission, uh, which again goes to some of the OPSEC stuff, right? So mm-hmm. just because you're using your computer on base and, and whatever else, you've got to be mindful of all those security protocols that go with that. Just like when that maintenance person is loading software on the airplane um, and talking to their friends at home um, and whatever else, everybody's involved in this process of doing the best they possibly can yep. to provide quality training, which means that 
everybody is potentially a, uh, a risk right. um, to the mission, um, whether they're in an airplane or not. And that all those steps along the way to get an airplane actually airborne does matter because if those folks on the ground aren't doing their job and they accidentally leak a flying schedule, that's potentially you know a bad situation for the pilots that are up in the air. Yeah. Okay. So both great points, and we will be talking. I'll I'll tease a future episode here a little bit. Uh, we'll be talking a little bit uh, in the final episode with Billy Flynn, who was the chief test pilot for the F thirty five, among several other not insignificant uh, feathers in his cap of his long career. Uh, so we will be talking about that as a platform. Not necessarily as much as an aggressor, but that may be something for us to revisit at some point in the future, uh, looking at, you know, f- threading that needle of enough times gone by that we know how they're going to be used and we can actually talk about it. Because, you know, I know Jell has talked about it. You've talked about it. You know, Crunch talked about it on the Tomcast. And the last thing we want to do while we're entertaining and educating people is put any of our warfighters at risk. We were all there at one point and you don't want to be there. You don't want to be that guy, I should say. And uh, to your point, I I can only imagine the challenges right now. So I think it's a a great point you made that aggressors aren't just in the air. We face a full spectrum threat. Uh, You know, I remember when I was first in the Navy telling family like, well, when are you, when are you leaving next week? Where are you going to see? When will you be back? When we're back, right? I, the idea of a Facebook page for the ship or for the squadron is, is just very foreign to me. Yeah. Uh, and then we hear these reports that, you know, like the running apps, you know, the the track your run apps are being exploited to figure out perimeters of bases and so on and so forth. So yeah. a great point that this is, we keep moving to an all domain effort. And that term gets used a lot, but I think every year that goes by, every generation that goes by, warfare just gets more and more integrated. Definitely. Definitely. All right. Well, really appreciate the time, Boat. Really appreciate your experience, everything you're doing. And I will say, uh, outside of this, I appreciate especially the Warbird work you do, because that was my introduction to the military, was as a young kid learning about World War II Warbirds. Uh, I think we have a shared passion for that, and you do an excellent job. So here's a plug for your co-hosting of the Fighter Pilot Podcast and specifically the Warbird episodes. Uh, You've really captured some people who are your resource that's going away because because we only live so long, and you're capturing the first-person experiences. So thank you for that. I'd very much appreciate it. It's an absolute pleasure. I thank Jello for the opportunity, and uh, yeah, I look yep. forward to what the future has. All right. Well, thank you very much. As usual, an awesome conversation with Boat. Let's look back quickly at where we've been and where we're going. As you've heard from our guests, learning never ends for a fighter pilot. For every milestone achieved, there's another one just coming into view. And as those challenges get more advanced, the difficulty in simulating them becomes larger as well. As we've just heard, that becomes even more difficult as we attempt to simulate rapidly advancing threat technology, both from a pure limitation of space available compared to modern weapons employment ranges, and because of the need for operational security to deny future enemies knowledge of our training. As we'll see in our next episode, this is a major challenge for exercises like Air Wing Fallon and Red Flag. That's next time on Fights On. Fights On has been made possible by a contribution from Cubic Corporation. Truth and Training, Cubic LVC, yesterday, today, and tomorrow.